Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond blog, Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, Please like both pages on Facebook. Well, this is not the first time that I'm covering uh, the Civil War. In fact, the first show of, of 2013 was in March. And for that show, we had Benny J. McRae, and he spoke about participation by people of African descent in America's Civil War chronology. And then on June 13, 2013, we had Bob J. O'Connor, and he spoke about black prisoners in Confederate prisons during the Civil War. And then on September the 12th, we had Robert S. Davis, and he shared with us his research in a book entitled Ghosts and Shadows of Andersonville. Well, today we will discuss the 56 United States Colored Troops Recognition Program. And I'm very pleased to welcome retired attorney, genealogist, and tour provider Sarah Cato. She is a member of the St. Louis African American History and Genealogy Society, a society that spearheaded the recognition of the 56 United States Colored Troops. They also have an ad hoc committee that's working to have memorial stones placed at the Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery. And we will learn more about this as we go on with the discussion. So let me give a warm welcome to Sarah Cato to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much, and I'm I'm just so pleased and honored to be here. 
to talk with you and your listeners. Well, I am so pleased and honored to have you because there's one thing I know about you. You have a lot of compassion for this topic. You know about the 56. So just help us understand. Let's start at the beginning. What would you say, uh, what can you tell us about just Missouri as it related to the union? Get, take us from the beginning okay. to where we are with the memorial. Sure, yes, ma'am. Okay, the the state of Missouri, when the war between the states began, the state of Missouri did not secede. Um, there were many, many uh slaveholders because Missouri was a slave state and many many confederate sympathizers and probably the best of those that people would recognize immediately are Quantrell and Jesse James and Frank James and mm-hmm. they were what uh what are called bushwhackers because they didn't join any regular units they were uh guerrilla warfare uh practitioners or we we would call them terrorists today um and they fought against um people who were pro union and anti-slavery and abolitionists particularly people from Kansas the people in Kansas were uh abolitionists and so they were called jayhawkers and you had the bootleg the uh, uh bushwhackers and the Jayhawkers uh, fighting this uh, kind of guerrilla warfare against each other. In the meantime, the government of the state of Missouri, the state government, the governor and the legislature and all of that, they were pro-Confederate. But, as I said, Missouri did not secede, and St. Louis, uh, the largest city at the time in the state of Missouri, was pro-Union because there were many, many German and uh, Irish immigrants in the city mm-hmm. of St. Louis, which kept St. Louis in the uh, in the Union. So when there came a time to form uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, and of course we know that that did not apply, to states that were not in rebellion. Missouri, even though it was a slaveholding state and a border state, was not in rebellion, and therefore the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to those enslaved in Missouri. Um, Eventually, the federal government sent out a call for uh, black troops. They decided that they would except African Americans into the United States military. And um, just just a point of, of clarification, when you talk about colored troops, there were really three different divisions of colored troops. There was uh, U.S. Uh, colored uh, infantry, which is what the 56th Regiment was, was colored infantry. There was colored cavalry, and there was colored artillery, and uh-huh. they they were three separate um, units, uh, branches, let's say, of the army. And then, of course, there were always black soldiers. I'm, I'm sorry, black sailors. 
and the sailors were never divided up uh, into a colored branch as opposed to just the Navy, period. They were always intermingled on ships. Um, the men from the 56 were, some of them were free people of color. Uh, many, many of them had been enslaved and were self-liberated. Uh, they decided that they, they no longer wanted to be enslaved, and they made a way uh, to make their escape. And they signed up at all different places from the state of Missouri, um, from way up north in Hannibal to all the way down south in Poplar Bluff and all places in between. And once they enlisted, what the troops had to do was they would enlist in wherever their little town was. And then they would make their way to St. Louis to a place called Benton Barracks. And Benton Barracks was a huge army uh, camp that was located in what is now the very heart of St. Louis, um, in uh, North St. Louis. And those of you who are familiar with St. Louis will recognize the name Fairgrounds Park. And Fairgrounds Park was where Benton Barracks was located. As a matter of fact, at the corner of Grand and Natural Bridge, there's a big thing that looks like a castle that uh, was became bear pits uh, later on. That was the armory for Benton Barracks. Uh, that's the only uh, building, vestige of Benton Barracks that still stands. So these soldiers were mustered in at Benton Barracks. They were trained. And then they were shipped out to Arkansas. Now, contrary to most militia units or home guard units, that would be the the something-something Missouri. Because Missouri was not in rebellion, because it was a border state, and because they did not want to offend the slaveholders who were still pro-union in Missouri, they did not organize black troops and give them a name from Missouri. So this unit was named the 3rd Arkansas Volunteer Infantry. And then in parenthesis behind that, it said African descent. Later on, when the unit was federalized, it became the 5th USCI, United States Colored Infantry, uh, Fifty-six. Uh, United States Colored Infantry, and they were stationed in Arkansas. And while they were in Arkansas, they participated in um, in a battle, the Battle of uh, Wallace Ferry, and they acquitted themselves very well and got a lot of commendations uh, from their commanding general, uh, who uh, very ironically said that they had fought so well that their names shall not perish from history. Well, uh, they also, in addition to that, they did garrison duty in uh, Helena, Arkansas, and they helped to build a uh, a college there for the the education of the newly freed enslaved people uh, there in Arkansas. And many of the men in the unit uh, themselves actually learned to read and write. And when I say they helped build this college, they gave money as well as they 
physically built the buildings. It started out as an orphanage, and um, then they they built a, a college. And there was a Quaker couple that came from Minnesota, and a couple of other people um, who came and helped to found this college. And one of the ladies, interestingly enough, Bernice, in in, uh, in the research that our committee has done, one of our committee members found um, that there was this lady um, who taught these uh, these guys. And um, on the flyer, there's uh, a couple of pictures, a picture of J.L. Baldwin and another gentleman. And um, they wrote to this lady later on and told, you know, how they appreciated what she had done and she had taught them to read and write. And um, those letters, the original documents, uh, well, her letters were published in, in her biography, and those letters are actually preserved today uh, in Atlanta by the uh, American Baptist Society. Uh, as and a part so of these letters history. are from from the two individuals who are in the the pictures that I posted with your flyer, or from yes, two other those, individuals. Those two, and there and there are some others also. Oh, wow. Right, right. That was that was astonishing to me that you know something like that would be preserved. And yes. uh, one of our one of our members did some research, and I believe it's, it was J. L. Baldwin. Um, he he lived. He got sick, but he lived through that ep- the epidemic, uh, the cholera epidemic that we'll talk about some more in a minute. And yes. uh, he became a an uh, AME minister here in St. Louis, and so, you know, uh, they found him in a couple of other records, you know, from church records and things like that. Uh, and uh, he he lived uh, well into the 1900s, very old man, uh, you know, and, and he lived and uh, participated in the GAR. Um, yes. Well, I want to ask you, because why do we hear, we hear a lot about the 54th, but we don't hear a whole lot about the 56. And so why is that the case about this okay. particular uh, regimen? Okay, the the 54th Massachusetts was um, a, a unit that was actually was a state unit, a, a, almost like a militia state unit that was organized mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. Now, they had people from all over who, who joined that unit. There was a 54th. And then the 55th was an overflow unit to that, Massachusetts. And the 54th fought at Fort Wagner. Well, that was the first battle that was really, really publicized uh, where they used black troops. It was not the first battle that black black troops fought in. Mm -hmm. First first battle that black, black troops fought in was actually fought here in Missouri, the Battle of Island Mound. Uh, which was fought by the, the first Kansas uh, volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the movie Glory uh, and the unique uh, battle situation with the uh, 54th Massachusetts, and they had um, uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winners and, and things of that sort, um, they were more publicized, 50, 54th was, um, 
and they they had some some very valorous do, deeds that were performed in that Battle of Fort Wagner, and and uh, they were decimated uh, in that battle, and that's one one of the reasons why they became so very famous. Now the fifty six, they were regular guys. The battle that they fought in, it was not a, a major turning point battle. Uh, they they didn't they didn't fight in any major turning point battles you know uh, Natchez Chickamauga Shiloh Ap- uh, Antietam any of those um, they were just regular guys they did they were serving uh, their country which and and this is one of the points that really made me interested and and um, also touched several of of my my committee members as well. Um, at the time, because Missouri was not in rebellion, these black men who were formerly enslaved and who were self-liberated, uh, they were still considered by the law to have no rights that a white man was bound to respect. They were considered by law not to be citizens of the United States because, you know, 13th, 14th Amendments hadn't, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments had not yet passed, so slavery hadn't been abolished. Uh, African Americans had not been given citizenship. And so these were men who were fighting for themselves. They knew what they were fighting for. They knew what they Uh had committed to. And they knew the danger because, um, you know, as as I look at various historical documents, um, people, black black people, African uh, African ancestored people in America who had been enslaved knew what the Civil War was about, and they knew it wasn't about states' rights. They didn't even know what that was. They knew it wasn't about uh, anything other than keeping them in the position that they were in as being enslaved. And so and they knew about places like Fort Pillow, uh, mm-hmm. where black soldiers were slaughtered, uh, even as they tried to surrender, as even as they threw down their guns, threw up their hands and ran away. They were slaughtered because they were black. The order was given uh, by by a man who went on to become one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan, the order was given that there would be no quarter given to these black soldiers. So these uh-huh. guys in the '56 and and uh, any other USCT, they knew what it was that they could be faced with uh-huh. at the very at the very least reenslavement. Um, you know, and 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 death most probably. Uh, yeah. So they they made. I, I hear people talk about commitment, you know, and, and they talk they talk about commitment, and, and I heard some old people say, you know, well, commitment is is the difference between ham and eggs. You see, when you have eggs, that was a contribution by the chicken. Mm-hmm. But when you have ham, that was a total commitment by the pig. <laughs> and these guys, these guys were doing the total commitment thing. 
Mm-hmm. They, they weren't making a contribution because they knew what they had to lose, and not just for themselves, but for their families, for their descendants. They they knew what they had to lose, and I think that's part of what uh, in in incites me and invigorates me every time I, I do something with this. Is uh, I think you know what. What what little can I do, uh, you know? Because I'm going home. I'm I, I'm I'm going to my house. Nobody's gonna bother me. I don't. Nobody's gonna make me do anything. Uh, I'm not enslaved anywhere. I don't have that hanging over my head. And so, because of them, I don't have, have it hanging over my head. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, it is incumbent upon me to try to obtain for them the recognition that they, they earned. Well, See, why we, don't we you are, give us, yes, give us a, a, a profile of of the men who were in the 56? Sure. We, well, uh, most of them had been farmers or farm laborers. Uh, on, on a lot of their their muster cards, their, their occupation is listed as a farmer or a laborer. Um, they came from all over Missouri. Um, you know, if you look on the and and you, you mentioned pension records at one point. If you look on the muster cards that are in the pension records, utilizing maybe something like Fold Three or something like that, uh, you see even a physical description of some of these guys. You know, uh, five foot four. Uh, Black hair, black eyes, dark complexion, you know, mm-hmm. and so you can get a picture of of how the, how these people look. Um, and what about the age? Well, the ones uh, they they took it's very interesting because they they had men that were like in their forties. You know, we we think of a man in his forties as somebody who's very settled. You know. Uh, yes. But they they had men in their up and in, into their forties who volunteered and jo- this was this was all a volunteer unit. Okay, no draftees, mm-hmm. no conscription, nothing like that. Uh, these weren't people who uh, somebody paid two three hundred dollars so they wouldn't have to go to the war and sent this person instead. These were this was an all volunteer unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they. Um, uh, were there because they wanted to be there and because they knew what they were doing, and and that's very compelling. And how many men are we speaking of? Well, now the the ones who um, the whole unit uh, or, or regiment is is roughly a thousand men. Uh, okay. And so you you talk nah, right around a thousand, give or take, and. Um, one of the interesting things about this particular unit is that they only had a very small number of men who uh, died in combat. Most of the men in this unit that died, I think 98% of the people who died in this unit died of disease. Mm-hmm. And as we know, during the Civil War times, uh, that was not really a, 
we didn't know about diseases as we do now. We didn't know about sanitation. We thought that various things came from the air, bad humors, miasma, shamira, uh, all those kinds of things. Uh, they didn't know about germs. They didn't know that diseases like typhus and cholera and things like that were spread environmentally. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so they didn't. They didn't know that you know. Uh, aside from the fact that you probably would think it would be nasty to drink out of a stream, uh, you know, because somebody upstream used that stream for a toilet. Mhm. Mhm. Uh, so there, there, there might have been contaminated water. There was probably in the camps where there was mud and raw sewage and things of that sort. Um, you know, not the best in. Um, Food food safety might be old, might not have been refrigerated. You know, there was no refrigeration to speak of. Uh, yes. So you could you could catch almost anything from anything. Um, and what these men they served, and they were they served through the the, the Civil War uh, from 1863. They served a three year enlistment to 1866. And as we know, the war ended in 1865. They stayed in Arkansas doing this garrison duty, and during that time was the time when the school was built. Well, well wait a minute. And, Let me take you back for one second. Now, okay. how long did they serve again? They served a three-year enlistment. Okay. And and the enlistment began in 1863. Okay. And so okay. When, when, when it was time for them to be mustered out, um, very interestingly, they were going to be mustered out, not in St. Louis. They were going to Fort Leavenworth to be mustered out. And if you know a little bit about the background of Leavenworth, Leavenworth um, became the home of the Buffalo Soldiers. Yes. Uh, so these guys were put on, uh, they left Helena, Arkansas, which is on the Mississippi River, and they were put on two steamers, the steamer Continental and the steamer Platte Valley, um, for transport uh, to Leavenworth. And, and that they would have come north on the Mississippi River. And the Mississippi River, um, there's the confluence of the Mississippi and the Missouri um, a few miles north of St. Louis. Uh, and they would have gone to that confluence and basically made a left turn and gone west to Fort Leavenworth, which is on the Missouri River in Kansas. Um, they started up the river, and by the time they got to Cairo, Illinois, which is not really very far at all uh, from Helena, Arkansas, uh, people were sick. But they didn't really ascertain what it was um, that they that that they were contracting at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time they got to Memphis, people were dying. By the time they got to St. Louis, they had a full-scale epidemic, and by that time they had determined that it was cholera. Okay. Now, there was a cholera epidemic that was going on at that time just across the United States, period. Mm-hmm. And when they came to St. Louis... Uh, for various reasons, and I think part of it had to do with the fact that they were black troops. Um, they they came in in the early evening, um, and they were kept on the ships 
so that they would not roam the town uh, when when they landed. They they were not allowed to debark. And when they ascertained uh, that there was cholera, uh, they were sent back south uh, to a place um, that would be in South St. Louis County. It may be about probably about 10 miles down the Mississippi River going south to an island called Quarantine Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they kept them in two groups, the Continental and the Platte Valley. Uh, they kept them separated. Uh, they thought that would help to contain uh, the disease and minimize the contagion. And so they they got there and they put them um, and actually, this is not so much a, a, a. It was pretty much Civil War procedure. They put them in tents on the ground, you know, when they uh, disembarked from the steamboats. And um, eventually, 179 men died on August of 1866 of cholera. Mm. And they were buried uh, there on that island, Quarantine Island, um, also had the name of Coke Island. And they were buried there on that island. And uh, they were buried in individual graves uh, and had board markers. Well, you know, in the course of time, those board markers deteriorated. Um, the men who were in the unit who got who, who lived, erected a monument uh, where the graves of their comrades were, a monument to the uh, 175 men who had died. Mm-hmm. And um, you'll, you'll hear a difference in the number because there are a few of them that were buried in individual graves at Jefferson Barracks. The okay. one officer who died was buried in a, in, in a private cemetery um, in uh, St. Louis City, um, he came. He came to his. Um, they let him go to his parents' home. Um, he he was an officer, and his father was a chaplain, and so they they let the father take him uh, to the home, and uh, eventually he died there at home. That's the one. Now officer I have a question coming out of the chat: that one ship have more death than the other, or was the death rate about the same? Um, you know, it was it was pretty even. It, it was pretty even um, as to um, the numbers who died. Um, there were roughly 120 who actually died on um, Quarantine Island, and about 50 plus or minus that died on the two ships. Okay. Now, Sarah, we're going to to take a little break right now. You have given us a very good overview of the 56 and where they are, where where we see them now that they have they have died. Right. Um, and so, when we come back, we're going to talk more about the. The first, uh, the first dedication that was done, and then why did the St. Louis group, your uh, genealogy group, become involved? And so you could tell us more about that when we come back on the break. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Okay. 
the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can find me most of the time every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Today's show is a special show because of the holiday. Well, I will always have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Also, all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast and can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find the archive shows on my website, genieberoots.com. That's genieberoots.com. Well, we have been listening to Sarah Cato, retired attorney, genealogist, and tour provider, discussing the 56 United States Colored Group Troops uh, record, uh, Recognition Program. And we're going to continue that discussion by finding out more about the memorial. So when was this group, when was there a first dedication ceremony for the 56? Okay. Now, this this kind of uh, is is the serendipity of of this. Um, they they were buried on this island. Uh, from the pictures that I have seen of it, it was pretty much just a an, an open field with this monument sitting in in the middle of it. Okay. And in it, the island, the course of the Mississippi River changed the channel changed several times and the island was being lost to subsidence and erosion and they thought that they were going to lose these graves um now let me let me say this there this island is was not exclusive to the 56 United States Colored Infantry this okay. was a place where they sent sick people from the city of St. Louis. And basically they sent you there to die. Um, if cholera, typhus, tuberculosis, any of those kinds of diseases, um, it, you you could equ- equate it to, um, to, to, to Molokai in, in Hawaii and the, and the lepers. And how mm-hmm. they, they sent these people here. And you didn't come back from Quarantine Island generally. <laughs> you, okay. When you when you went there, that was your when last you went, trip. That you was your last die. trip. Yes, yes, ma'am. You were sent there to die, to to be separate from the rest of the population, in hopes that they wouldn't catch whatever you had. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in 1939, a group of citizens uh, petitioned the War Department. Because you know that was before the Veterans Administration and and all of that, the War Department was in charge of national cemeteries and and soldiers and that kind of thing. Soldiers uh, remains. So the War Department was petitioned, and um, they agreed to move the remains from Coke Island for reburial at Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery. Okay. So they they took up the monument, uh, it, it, and and this is a this is a, a, a 
six foot tall, seven foot tall granite obelisk we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, that was on a granite base. So this was no small thing. And um, they they took up this obelisk and monument, and then they began to dig. And um, we we came across. Uh, we were directed to a document that was the final report for this undertaking in 1939, mm-hmm. uh, complete with original pictures and names and things of that sort. So there are actually pictures of where they opened up the graves, and there is nothing in those graves but bones, skeletal remains. Okay. Okay. Uh, nothing, not, not a blanket, not a button, not uh, remains of a shoe, anything, nothing. Are you saying so, that they just stripped them and threw them in a hole? Uh, yes, they were buried individually, though. Now, uh, that that sounds very callous, uh, and in, in, in many ways it was, but we can kind of understand that in the context of epidemic. Yes. Uh-huh. And... People didn't know where to jump, where 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 you caught things from. You know, did I catch mm-hmm. it by touching you, uh, by mm-hmm. being close to you? Did it jump off your clothes onto me? So they took everything and burned it. Okay. Uh, all okay. Of, all of their effects. They took they took all of that and burned it. And you can see in the the if you pull up their names in fold three on the pension records, you can see there there is a. a the army is very good at keeping records. They have lists of names of everything. They ha- they know where you are, where you moved to, when you went uh, from this place to that place to the other place. They document all of that. So they right. have documentation that uh, when this person died, no effects, no effects. It's very, you know, when when you read. The documents and and they're just they're just bare documents, pieces of paper, um, until you start to really let that soak in as to what that meant. What did that mean when they said no effects? What did it mean? Died of cholera, August the sixteenth, eighteen sixty six, on Quarantine Island in St. Louis. You know, I mean, okay, those are words on that, but what did that really mean? Yes. Uh, you know that that's somebody's life that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That that's somebody's son, father, cousin, uncle, granddaddy, uh, nephew, friend, boyfriend. Uh, you know that he was somebody. He was a person, not just a name on a piece of paper. And so they took these. Uh, they did it very methodically and how they measured it out and surveyed it. And they dug up uh, these areas and they discovered these skeletal remains. Well, what it looks like they did was they just reached down with a, a, a shovel at that point and scooped them up. And they put them in metal boxes, not caskets, mm-hmm. metal boxes uh, that uh, in the final report uh, tells you that they're metal boxes that were used as ammunition boxes. They put them in these metal boxes, and um, there is uh, one, and and I don't know if I sent it to you or not, Bernice, but there is one very chilling picture in which you see 
the various dignitaries of the War Department and the committee and the um, Catholic priests because they had a Benedictine uh, uh, monastery that was there that helped to uh, care for the sick at this hospital in Mm -hmm. 1939. And and the priest is out there, and they're all arrayed around the monument. And then in front of the monument, you see something that looks like sticks that are standing up in front of the monument. Yeah. And then you look look at it a little closer, and it looks like they're balls on the on the monument. Yeah. And then you look at it some more, and you say, "Oh my goodness, those are skulls and leg bones." You look at the, the Wait, monument. are you saying that they're exposed? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You look at you look at the boxes and you see they have these boxes with dirt and you can see some bone and their skulls sitting on top of the boxes, you know. Um I guess they call themselves um uh decorating them or setting them out or whatever, you know. They have they have bones and, and um you know arm bones crossed and skulls sitting on top of them so you got skull and crossbone type thing uh mm-hmm. in in these pictures uh you know and everybody's smiling and happy to have their picture made there uh, uh and and I guess they they really thought that they were doing something that was a good thing but mm-hmm. personally I I was appalled to see that you know I I looked at it and you look at a book and you flip through the pages and big deal right and then I slowed down and started to look at it again, and quite literally, my mouth fell open. Mm-hmm. And then I I I said said some words, you know, that 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 my pastor probably wouldn't have wanted to hear uh, yeah. <laughs> about about these people and the fact that those were human remains. Well, you know, uh, you I know. want to back up for a second because you're saying that was 1939? 39, yes, ma'am. Okay, so that's 70-something years after death. Yes. That this group uh, petitioned the the War Department. So yes. what was happening and who who were the people in this group? Were these people of African descent? Were these family members or just at, some do-gooders? At least one of them we know. Uh, the the chairman of the committee's name was Jacob Cool K U H L, and one of the members of the committee was um, one of the Mitchell brothers. Well, the Mitchells um, founded the uh, uh, African American newspaper, the St. Louis American, which uh, you know was one of the mainstay. Uh, African-American newspapers like the Defender and the Afro, uh, that that kind of thing. And so Mr. Mitchell was very influential also. And then there was, they used uh, a black undertaker by the name of Gates. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I think that part of it was they, they, they wanted to move them because the graves, they wanted them to be buried in the National Cemetery. Um and I think part of it was that they felt that um, these men were very civic, and so I think they felt that um, that was something that, uh, and and I'll use the term of the day, Negroes uh, deserved 
to be buried mm-hmm. there, and Negro veterans deserve to be treated like other veterans. Uh, uh-huh. And and so they petitioned the War Department, and the War Department complied, and uh, they gathered these remains up, and they buried them in a mass grave at Jefferson Barracks. Um, they had a ceremony. They did full military honors. Uh, they had a rifle squad, taps, the, the whole nine. I mean, you know, they did... Um, a dignified and respectful, I think, service. Um, the man who was the the Catholic uh, monk, the friar, he uh, he spoke at the service, and so I think they did what they thought was good for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think part of it was too. This was 1939, and they put a lot of people to work on this project. Uh, and I think that had something to do with it too. Uh, and so for, they they rested all this time yes. in this in this Now there's a grave. question coming off. I mean, it's, it's about the mass grave. Um, okay. Um, did they really get all of the remains off of the island? In so far as we know. Okay. Okay. Um, we, and we what have, was the whole we, purpose of putting them in the mass grave? Well, when they when they gathered up the remains, they did not keep them separate. Uh, and and I think that was an expeditious and convenient way. They did not mm-hmm. keep them separate, so they didn't. Uh, you know, they didn't dig 175 individual graves. Okay. Uh, at Jefferson Barracks. It was mm-hmm. it was expeditious. Uh, they probably would have had trouble in trying to individually identify those remains. Um, yes. Remember, now this we're talking about 1939. There was no such thing uh, as DNA identification. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, like today, uh, if if we have a soldier, God forbid, who gets uh, killed in Afghanistan, for instance. We will never have an unknown soldier because they have already collected DNA from yes. every individual in the military now uh, to that to that end. So there won't be an unknown soldier any longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and even and and one of the things is that at first it was promulgated that they nobody knew the names of who these people were that were buried in this mass grave. Because say that again. On, on, the say that again? on the monument there are no names of individuals. No names. Okay. So the the thing that was promulgated was that nobody knew the names of these individuals. Mm-hmm. However, let me go back to something I said in the last portion when we talked about the fact that when you are in the Army, the Army knows where you are every minute of the day. You go you go to lunch, to the mess hall. They know you in there. They know where you are. Yes. You come out of there, you go to your job. They know you wherever you were assigned to be. You leave there and you go on sick call because you don't feel good. They know where you are. So there is a list in the, in the military 
to account for where you are at all times. That's why when you leave and you don't tell somebody, that's why you are A-W-O-L, absent without leave. Because mm-hmm. you didn't ask and they don't have your name down as being uh, having permission to be wherever it was you went. Mm-hmm. Okay, because, so we're now we're here now. So why right. did the St. Louis? Why did your group uh, decided to get involved in well, another memorial? Okay, we got involved because uh, and and here again, this is this is uh, God's serendipity. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't anything that that was planned. Uh, we were having a meeting, and our scheduled speaker did not uh, was not able to come. And so, at the last minute, our president uh, Charles Brown asked another gentleman by the name of Al Katzenberger if he would talk with us, uh, and and he agreed. And he started telling us about uh, the mass grave and the fifty six. And that was the first that I had um, really in-depth heard about. I was with some people on a tour, and we went to look for the grave, mass grave, but we could ne- we didn't find it. And so I didn't really know anything, a lot about it, until um, Mr. Katzenberger came and talked to our group. Mm-hmm. And um, he he talked with us, and in the course of our meeting, uh, you know, we asked questions like, you know, we were appalled, uh, you know, suitably, we were suitably disturbed, and appropriately so, and we asked, well, what can we do, you know, and how can we do this? And so after the meeting was over, um, I just, you know, called, talked with uh, Mr. Brown very briefly and then called and asked if anyone was interested in this project any further you know to come forward and we just we just kind of formed an ad hoc committee at that time mm-hmm. and um people started doing research uh we have a lady who is in our group who is a librarian with St. Louis County Library and uh, Mr. Katzenberger had told us where the final report was and it was placed at St. Louis County uh Public Library and so this lady left our meeting and went and located that report that day mm-hmm. uh, for for us. Um, people began to do research. And, you know, in that report, four pages in that report, there is a list taken from the commanding officer of the unit as to his report of the 175 men who died of cholera in August of 1866, there were the names. Wow. There were the name. There were the names that people had said. Well, we don't know who they are. We can't find the names. We don't know. There were the names in that list, mm. and mm. so that. That propelled us, and we we started writing letters to our political people, uh, our Congress people, um, our our senators, and um, we have everyone in the in the Missouri delegation on this side of the state uh, politically is on board with it, and it is now. It when is, you say uh, this side of the state, what do you mean this side on, of the state? On the on the St. Louis side of the state. 
Okay. On the eastern, the eastern part of Missouri. Uh, okay. And, so you have and, that support. Right, and both of the senators um, who are supporting uh, memorializing these men, uh, as well as one of the congressmen from, from the western side of the state, um, e- Emmanuel Cleaver. And so uh, in, in talking with various people, the suggestion was made that we should do a memorial service. And the person who uh, suggested it to me said, you need to have it either at the same place or the same time or something that links you to them. And so in working with the uh, director of Jefferson Barracks, Mr. Jeff Barnes, who, by the way, has been most helpful, uh, you know, ex- extremely helpful and, and most courteous and, and solicitous along the way uh, in, in trying to assist us, uh, we got permission to hold a ceremony uh, of uh, remembrance and recognition. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Katzenberger, in the meantime, uh, contacted the Missouri State Archives, who happened to have the regimental standard uh, for the 56th, the, the regimental flag, as well as their regimental um, stars and stripes, both of wow. which are very tattered and worn and uh, just about disintegrating. And they're trying to do restoration on those. He contacted mm-hmm. the Missouri State Archives, got a picture of the uh, regimental standard, the, the flag, and he sought donations through his network of people and had a flag made. Oh, that's it, beautiful. It is a beautiful flag, Bernice. It's like 12 by 12. It's, lo- it's larger than, than most flags that you see. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's made to be in a parade and the floral back, you know, and that kind of thing with gold fringe on it. And, and it's, it's a very beautiful flag. And he had this flag made. And so, uh, and and allowed us to to use it, you know, at the at the ceremony. And uh, we had a ceremony. Uh, Congresswoman Ann Wagner, who is the congresswoman for the district where Jefferson Barracks is located, and um, a uh, and when was the ceremony? Mother. The ceremony was August the sixteenth. Mm-hmm. And we chose August the sixteenth because there were so many men who died on August the 16th. Mm-hmm. And as a part of that ceremony, um, Congresswoman Wagner spoke, and then we read the names. And we read the names, and we told the bell each time that a name was called. And it was mm-hmm. a very, very, very haunting ceremony. Uh, oh, very, very moving. We told the bell. Then, then um, one of the American Legion posts uh, did the taps, and then they did the rifle volleys, um, you know, as a remembrance. And we have made arrangements with Jefferson Barracks that that will be an ongoing something that will happen in August of each year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we also went back uh, for Veterans Day. Several members of the committee went back for Veterans Day, and we attended the ceremony uh, that was held uh, in the chapel at Jefferson Barracks for all of the people buried there. And then we went individually 
to the the monument and the site of the mass grave, and uh, we read the names. And for each time that a name was read, uh, one of the ladies had her grandchildren with her, and um, the little boys put flowers on the grave each time we read a name. Uh, So that was, and then we, you know, we joined hands, we sang a song, we said a prayer, uh, you know, on that day. So that's kind of been our our remembrance services and recognition services. Uh, But at the same time, we are trying to work with the VA um, to get uh, memorial stones uh, or memorial markers placed for these men. Uh, Now, what's the difference between a memorial stone, a marker, and a headstone? Okay. Um, that, that I'm, I'm glad you asked that because we had to learn that. That was that was that was a part of our our education on this and and learning. Um, when a person dies, uh, who is an eligible veteran, and that is anyone who was discharged with an un, other than dishonorable discharge, uh, and is eligible to be buried in the national cemetery. If that person's remains are there and identifiable, they are entitled to a headstone. And the headstone has your name and and your rank and your war and your units and your dates, those kinds of things. And on the back of it then is your spouse or whomever is the second person that you designate to be buried there. However, if the remains are not... uh, there, say were buried at sea or um, were unidentifiable or lost or something like that, then um, you get what is called a memory stone. And it says um, in memory of and, and the same types of information and this, your symbol of um, uh, belief, you know, if you're a Christian or a Jew or whatever, uh, your belief is, your symbol is placed on there, and your information. But your remains are not actually in that spot. And so we learned that um, the men of the 56 could not have headstones because we cannot identify individually who who's there and who's not. Um, and and that that's the difference, and that that's the why of it. And and we are um, we are dealing with the um, the Veterans Administration now because they're um, uh, part of their regulations uh, say that in order to uh, apply for a stone, you must be next of kin. But mm-hmm. we contend that we want them to finish what was started by the War Department. Okay. That the War Department already verified their eligibility to be there. Uh, they put them there. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, we, That's are, right. we are quite certain that, that the people from the War Department in 1939 did not just uh, do that because this committee asked them to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I am I am all too certain that they did their own search to make sure that these were people who were eligible to be buried in the National Cemetery. 
mm-hmm. uh, before they did. And so uh, we we contend that they didn't finish everything that those men earned and were entitled to uh, as combat veterans who died while still in the U.S. Army. They they didn't get mm-hmm. what they were entitled to, and we are asking them to do to finish what the War Department started. As as they are the successors and in interest to the War Department, uh, they are responsible to do that. So, what are you all doing, like right now, um, to continue your effort to get well, this recognition? Right now, we we are doing research. Um, what we what we want to do is we want to do research on each and every individual, and pull up their um, military record. Um, mm-hmm. g- generally, utilizing fold three. Um, there may be some where we'll have to go. Like there is a national archives here in St. Louis. Um, that we may have to go to to uh, find some of the records. But we want to look at, at each individual's record, military record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them actually do say on their muster cards that they were buried in the banks of the Mississippi River. We want to verify that. But I, I want to verify also in the military records uh Okay, did you all stop the boat every time somebody died to bury fifty some odd men, or did you did you make another mass grave? Did you dump them in the Mississippi River, and that was just your notation? Uh, where are they? Because those are those people are very obviously entitled to the memory stones. Okay, um, well we're getting close to the. Offer. Yeah, I'm Go sorry. Ahead. There has been an offer uh, by the National uh, Cemetery Administration to make a a very large plaque. Um, This grave is the largest mass grave at Jefferson Barracks, but there are many, many mass graves at Jefferson Barracks. And uh, a lot of them have a very large slab on it that has the names of uh, the individuals whose remains are in the mass grave and yes. tell a little bit about whatever was the incident that caused them to be buried there. Yeah. Um, for instance, there is a mass grave with like 126 uh, people from um, uh, the prisoner camp, prisoner war camp in World War II at Palawan, um, where they, they put the prisoners into uh, an underground tunnel-like, and then they set it afire. Mm-hmm. Uh and and killed all these people in there, and their remains are buried at Jefferson Barracks. And there's a there's a very nice uh, it's a large plaque, it's about three by six, uh, with the names on it and the story of what happened. And that's one of the things that that has been discussed. Okay, so what would you recommend for others who may want to do a similar um, memorial in another place? that may find similar circumstances where the recognition has not yet been uh, actually done? Number one, do your research. 
you 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 must research and you must you must research and you must have uh you must be conversant with all of the information better than anyone else yeah you know uh you you have to know because um you know and 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 it's really not not intended to be negative or to be cruel but these people are are uh bureaucrats who are doing a job and if they it's it's a lot of trouble to them so if they can tell you no and you don't know the reasons why they should tell you yes uh, yes you're you're in a bad place we also were are very blessed to have gotten our political people involved with this so mm-hmm. we're we're not we're not out there by ourselves um doing doing these things um you know but but do a lot of research um the circumstances are different if it is a private uh cemetery as opposed to a national cemetery um we are we are dealing with the national cemetery so it's it's a little bit different uh as to you know what we can call upon them to do uh yes. because we didn't place the bodies there they were placed there at the National Cemetery. Therefore, they have a right to be there. You have already established that. Yes. Um, now, there was a gentleman in name, um, his last name is Martin. Uh, he was a Civil War private. And um, he, uh, he you, you see him in some pictures. He's a double amputee, um, left leg right arm I think it was um that he lost. His name was Lewis Martin. And he was mm-hmm. buried in a private cemetery in Springfield, mm-hmm. uh Illinois. The same cemetery that Abraham Lincoln is buried in, by the way. Mm-hmm. And very recently um the people there uh did a lot of research and they placed the stone on his grave. His grave was unmarked in the pauper section of that cemetery, but they bought the stone privately and uh, placed it there uh, because, uh, because none of them were next of kin and it was a private cemetery and uh, they didn't, were not able to get, um, uh, they did not meet the requirements to have a stone placed by the Veterans Administration. Mm-hmm. So they bought a stone and placed it there Uh if you can find descendants and and work with them, that's the best way and the easiest way to get it done. Yes, if you can find descendants. Well, you have yes. given us just some wonderful information, and I just want people, how can they continue to communicate with you or to find out the progress that your committee is making uh, in getting the memorial stones? What's, what's now, the contact uh, information? We we do have uh, the St. Louis African American History and Genealogy Society uh, mm-hmm. does have a, have a website. Okay. And um, that's they would ha- they just put in S T L A A H G S into Google and they can go right right to the website. Um, okay. And there is also a link because the service in August was was uh, filmed. Um, yes. There, there is a link to uh, YouTube on that, um, and it was also it was filmed, uh, and there was also a news segment that was done on it 
by uh, one of the stations here in the city, and that was picked up by CNN. So it is it is also out there. If you just put in 56 USCT, um, yes. you, you can pull up some of those things also. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for just oh, sharing for this information. I'm just so, so proud of your group for what you are doing and what you will continue to do, and it's very inspiring. I, I think that so many of us don't even think that we – we could do something like that, and you have done it. And so I'll say let you serve as a role model to all of the others who may have uh, find themselves with research, with information. They don't know what to do. They need to call you because <laughs> you can give them some advice. <laughs> well, so I want to just thank you. you. Having me. Well, thank you so much. Now, I, I just want everyone to know that I have the January – 2014 uh, shows listed on Facebook. I won't go through them right now, but I want you to know that next Thursday, January 2nd, we're going to talk about keeping yourself balanced. And what does that mean? And this is the kind of show that I want to have every first uh, Thursday of the year so that we could just look at what we're doing to stay healthy to stay happy, to stay focused, and to do the things that we want to do in life that, that keeps us on the right track. I want to also wish all of you just peace and joy, patience and happiness as you spend your holiday with your family and friends. And so thank you so much, Sarah. You have just oh, done a great job today sharing this information with us. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. And, and in this case, also go to Fold 3 and look at some of the military information on Fold 3. Now, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. I want you to also remember to listen to the African Root Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday mornings and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Bennett, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I also want to mention to you all that I've received just numerous requests from individuals wanting uh, the transcription of, of my shows. And that's uh, the transcription services do cost uh, a great deal, and I have not transcribed the shows. However, you are welcome to donate. Uh, I have a little donate button on my website if you would like me to start a fund that I can raise to start transcribing those shows. I would appreciate it. So have a great day, everybody. I look forward to you joining me on Thursday nights. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.